DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This week on the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we take a look at the security and funding situation on both sides of the Atlantic and talk to DW's Kiev correspondent Nick Connolly for a more personal take on the situation on the ground. Yeah, if you live in Ukraine, you know any Ukrainian people, you're constantly being asked, we need to collect 20,000 euros for three pickups. We need this much money for uh, some specialised supplies or for a better prosthetic for someone who's been wounded rather than the kind of basic model that is provided by the government. So that is very much kind of part of everyone's life here. Those stories and more coming up. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On the 24th of February 2022, Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Here's a short audio reminder of what those first few horrifying weeks of war felt like. Dear Ukrainian citizens, this morning President Putin announced a special military operation in Donbass. In many Ukrainian cities, explosions were heard. Today, calm is needed from each of you. I will talk to you soon. Don't panic. We are strong. We are ready for everything. We will win over anyone because we are Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. Early this morning, Russian troops invaded Ukraine, a free and sovereign country. And once again, in the center of Europe, innocent women, men and children are dying of fear for their lives. We condemn this barbaric attack and the cynical arguments to justify it. It is President Putin who is bringing war back to Europe. And in these dark hours, the European Union and its people stand by Ukraine and its people. My phone started to get crazy. I was, uh, it was ringing non-stop. When I picked it up, my friends told me, uh, and uh, it's a bomb in Kiev. Uh, and I asked uh, what's happened. And friend uh, told me Russia started war in Ukraine. After this call, my world uh, turned around uh, upside down. I mean, for me, all started on the morning of 24 February because Anna woke me up and uh, told me with tears in her eyes that Russia attacked Ukraine. And at the evening of 24th, I made a decision, Max, you can't sit at home and do nothing. You can't leave the people alone who have lived and worked with you a long time and who became part of your family. These are humans like you. So you have to risk your life and help these people as much as possible. I was like, okay, I will go to Ukraine, I will help the people and I will do everything which is possible for me. I bought in Kharkiv on the 25th of February. The war started. After a few days, there was no food in uh, shops we just 
got uh, starving. There was a lot of sounds of rockets. We have to search for for a new place to live. like uh, to be able to defend my family. I don't have any experience um, with the weapon and um, I'm here to get some basic knowledge on how to handle weapon and also have to do first aid. The sounds of the early weeks of Russia's war in Ukraine, as reported here on Inside Europe there. Two years later, and the conflict is, of course, ongoing. With Ukraine now on the defensive, the outcome of the war is increasingly dependent upon the continued will of Ukraine's allies, both in Europe and the US, to provide sufficient financial and military assistance. High stakes indeed for Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as he arrived at the Munich Security Conference, which took place in Germany from the 16th to 18th of February, gathering leaders and policy makers alike. Our reporter, Natalie Carney, was there to see it happen. In 2022, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky last graced the Munich stage, at that time in a well-pressed suit and tie. Five days later, Russian tanks rolled across the border into Ukrainian territory, igniting an already simmering conflict into what would become one of the most defining wars of our time. Last Saturday, Zelensky was back in Munich, this time donning an army sweater, warning his country's allies that more weapons are needed to win this war. Unfortunately, keeping Ukraine in the artificial deficit of weapons, particularly in deficit of artillery and long-range capabilities, allows Putin to adapt to the current intensity of the war. If we don't defeat Putin now, every new Russian dictator will remember how to maintain power by annexing the lands of the peoples, killing opponents and destroying the world order. If this happens, Europe, Central Asia and the whole world will be a very dark place. His words came as his troops began withdrawing from the strategic frontline town of Avdivka, a move he says was necessary to save soldiers' lives. Certain European countries have provided billions of euros in military assistance to the war, but Mikhail Garler, the standing rapporteur to Ukraine for the European Parliament, believes the weight of that assistance needs to be more evenly spread out across the Union. We need to deliver far more weapons. We need uh, to get those who are from the executive side here. We as parliamentarians, we are pushing them to, to uh, realize their commitments that we uh, have seen as lip service, but now it must be delivered. Germany is relatively much delivering. We are the second largest after the US, uh, France, Spain, Italy. They have been quite hesitant and they must be encouraged to, to deliver far more. At the conference, Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen appealed to other European nations to do more. If you ask the Ukraines, they are asking us for ammunition now. Artillery now, from the Danish side, we, we decided to donate our entire artillery. And I, I'm sorry to say, friends, there are still ammunition in stock in Europe. This is not only a question about production, because we have weapons, we have ammunitions, 
we have air defense that we don't have to use ourselves at the moment that we should deliver to Ukraine. Attention to the actions of Russia were realized in the first moments of the three-day conference when the death of Russian government critic Alexei Navalny was announced. Shortly after, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, voiced what many were thinking. The reports of his death are further proof of Putin's brutality. It reminds us why our support for Ukraine is so important. Because Ukraine is fighting back heroically against Putin's continued brutality. Yet not everyone in the U.S. is convinced about that heroic fight as a 60 billion U.S. dollar aid package for Ukraine sits idle, held up in the U.S. Congress, thereby halting U.S. shipments of ammunition and missiles to the war's front lines. Zelensky traveled straight from Munich to those dark, cold front lines on Monday to try and explain these politics to the distressed soldiers. But before leaving the warmth and comfort of the Munich Security Conference, he stressed to policymakers the need to understand the physical hardships and determination of the battle itself. I think if we are in dialogue how to finish the war, we have to demonstrate people who are decision makers what does it mean the real war, not in Instagram. Real war. Slava Ukraine. Natalie Carney, DW, Munich. As we just heard there, a lot is currently riding on the political situation across the Atlantic. Our Brussels correspondent, Terry Schultz, spent much of her time at the Munich Security Conference delving deeper into the fears and calculations of the North Americans in the room. I have this feeling that this is a conference on the eve of war. That's how former U.S. Ambassador to NATO Evo Dalder summed up the atmosphere at this year's Munich Security Conference, or MSC, which he says was unlike any other he's attended in more than a dozen years. He went on. Even though there's an active, really hot war that is dominating, which is the war in Ukraine, there are a lot of people, and they're not just in Eastern Europe, there are a lot of people here in Europe who are worried that, in fact, war will spread Uh, because Russia is intent on attacking NATO one day sooner than anybody would thought possible. This year's MSC was already bound to be dominated by worry over the relationship between the U.S. and Europe and fears it's going to get worse. On top of the war going badly in Ukraine, Republicans on Capitol Hill are blocking more than $60 billion in aid that Kyiv desperately needs, And their presumptive candidate for president, Donald Trump, has encouraged Russia to attack NATO allies he feels are underspending on defense. Dalder says he was asked the same questions over and over by his European friends. Can Trump win? If he does, will he abandon alliances like NATO and the European Union? And will Russian President Vladimir Putin take advantage of this? Dalder's answers. Trump may happen. It's far too close for you to feel comfortable. Second answer is no, he doesn't believe in alliances. And there's no way you're going to be able to convince him on it. And three, yes, I do think Vladimir Putin is looking to exploit weakness and divide the alliance. Donald Trump may do it for him. So that's why you, the Europeans, need to start thinking about how do you prepare yourself for a world in which you will have to use your own capabilities to defend yourself. Something you haven't thought about for 75 years, to be frank. Now you really need to do it. Dalder says that's his advice, even if Biden wins the November election. On top of all this anxiety headed into the conference, as it got underway on Friday, a new shockwave hit the world, felt palpably inside the Hotel Bayerischerhof where the conference is held. People were just staring at their phones in disbelief 
as the bulletins came through. We begin with breaking news from Russia. The prison agency there has just announced that imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died. Russia's federal... Russia's most powerful opposition figure was dead, and his wife, Yulia Navalny, was there at the conference. She decided to take the stage, her appearance captivating the entire event. I didn't know if I should come out here or go straight to my children, she said. But she knew her husband would want her there, demanding that Putin be held accountable for his death. Would this reminder of the price Russia makes its critics pay move the U.S. and Europe to reinforce their unity and mutual defense? Lithuania's foreign minister, Gabrielius Landsbergis, is not known for his sunny view of world conditions, but he said he hoped so. This has to be a reminder that if we want to deter, we have to take measures to deter. And Navalny is one symbol of it. Ukraine is a second one. And then when people are talking that, look, Russia can advance further to NATO, why Russia would do it? Not because it has a superior firepower than, than NATO, but because we're not deterring. That means that they, they might start believing that we won't be able to answer, that we will promise some devastation and there will be none. But this is what's emboldening him. This is why we have to stick together. But Saturday at the conference brought more dire news. As Ukraine's president took the stage, his military forces had to withdraw from the eastern Ukrainian city of Avdivka. He pleaded yet again with allies for more weapons and ammunition and said with them, Ukraine can still win this war. NATO's top military commander, Admiral Rob Bauer, believes him. Yes, Ukraine can win. I mean, if you would have asked in the middle of World War II how things were going, a lot of people would probably be also not too optimistic, and still, uh, we won. Pessimists don't win wars. But will Ukraine even be able to keep fighting the war? Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance, a Trump ally, said in Munich that even if his party colleagues pass the next aid package, which he opposes, he thinks it's already time now for Ukraine to talk peace with Russia. And my argument is, look, I think what's reasonable to accomplish is some negotiated peace. I think Russia has incentive to come to the table right now. I think Ukraine, Europe, and the United States have incentive to come to the table. That is going to happen. This will end in a negotiated peace. The question is when it ends in negotiated peace and what that looks like. But most European NATO allies, especially those along the front line who fear they would be next, vehemently oppose anything other than a Russian defeat. Depending on what happens in the year to come, there may be even more insecurity at the Munich Security Conference 2025. Terry Schultz, DW, Munich. Just a quick reminder that our feedback address for comments and questions is insideeurope at dw.com. Stay with us. We'll be getting the view from Kiev next. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine two years ago, DW's Kyiv correspondent Nick Connolly became a war reporter overnight. At the same time, he watched as the Ukrainians around him found themselves having to flee or fight. 
When we spoke earlier, the European Council on Foreign Relations had just published a survey suggesting that barely 10% of Europeans believe that Ukraine can now defeat Russia. Was this a pessimism shared by people in Ukraine? I asked Nick. Well, I definitely think there's a different perception outside Ukraine to the to the kind of atmosphere and the kind of sense most people have here. Yes, there's disappointment that the counteroffensive, the Ukrainian counteroffensive last summer didn't achieve more. But I think it was something that was kind of slightly more hyped abroad than it was here. Here, people obviously living this reality, speaking to their friends and family who are serving the front lines. So I think there was slightly less expectation that suddenly in one foul swoop, kind of it will all be solved. Obviously, people were surprised and kind of happy at what was achieved in the autumn of the first year of 2022, when suddenly, you know, in the space of a couple of weeks, the Ukrainian army retook Kherson, the city, the West Bank of the Dnipro River, and most of the Kharkiv region. But I think people were acutely aware of the fact that the Russian army had dug in, had built minefields, had uh, really built a very kind of extensive line of fortifications. But there's, I think there's a sense here that this is now the kind of shift from the sprint, the adrenaline-filled first year, year and a half, to the marathon, uh, people are very conscious of what this war is costing them in terms of lives, in terms of friends wounded and, and killed. But when you speak to most people, they'll just say, this is the least bad option. This is awful. But freezing the conflict, giving Russia a chance to rebuild its army and to come again in five years' time isn't an option for most Ukrainians. Uh, and uh, they're just uh, hoping that eventually Russia weakens. It is obviously a question of motivation, right? You know, Ukrainians being called up to fight, fighting on the front lines, know why they're fighting. Most younger Russians who are being called up to fight don't know why they're fighting. They don't share Vladimir Putin's obsession with Ukraine for the most part. And uh, there's a hope here that that eventually prevails and they don't really see a better option alternative, even if they didn't want to carry on fighting. Thanks, Nick. I mean, that's the macro level. Maybe we could sort of zoom in a little bit to the micro level um, and the encounters that you're having uh, in your daily life, because uh, as well, of course, as uh, heading up uh, DW's Kyiv Bureau, you are very much tapped into everyday life in in Kyiv and in Ukraine. Um, What are the encounters that you've had recently that have really stuck with you? Who's on your mind at the moment? Well, I've spoken about him before on the show, but my hairdresser is kind of my most uh, direct connection to this because he uh, also fought as a sniper at the beginning of the war. This is someone who had no military experience before, but had uh, done biathlon as a teenager and so was good at shooting. He uh, got some pretty serious uh, wounds. He got some concussion very badly, had to be off for a few months, and now is back to kind of a mixed uh, schedule of, he now trains new recruits, and then gets some time off to do rehab and to work a bit and to raise money for the army. And just this last weekend, he was meant to be training troops in the east, in the Donetsk region, away from the direct front lines. It was meant to be a training ground. And then when the retreat from Avdiivka happened, his unit was sent in to shore up the basically the route in and out to help the troops that had been there for months to get out more safely and to lose as few troops as possible while doing so. So suddenly this guy who had been away from active service or from the kind of most vulnerable, dangerous parts of the front lines for, let's say, the best part of a year, was sending me videos on Telegram uh, of him holed up in an industrial facility in Avdivka with glide bombs falling around them and bits of concrete falling in front of him. And now, you know, 
couple of days later, he's back in Kiev and asking me if I want a haircut. <laughs> what was your answer? Uh, yes, it was my answer. And unfortunately, he's now had to go back again to transport some equipment down there. So my haircut was cancelled and it's going to be happening next week. But um, it does obviously make it different when you experience the war, not just through our trips as journalists and reporting from the front lines, not just reading the headlines, but also seeing it through the prism of, of this man's life. And this is not someone who was in any way interested in the military before, who had any particular connection to it, but who was someone who was just a, a Kiev native who has, has a child and a, uh, and a wife and uh, was called up or you know, um, volunteered before he was called up at the beginning of the war because he had these skills. And um, it is also extraordinary because we're doing, you know, he, we're, we're faced here in Ukraine with constant calls for fundraising because things that soldiers need aren't provided by the government in full. So we're talking about civilian cars, right? So they might get the tanks, they might get the military weapons, but they need cars to drive around the front lines to get from where they maybe have their time off to the front line positions to uh, just do the kind of basic logistics. And these cars are obviously constantly getting destroyed. So um, you know, if you live in Ukraine, you know any Ukrainian people, you're constantly being asked, we need to collect 20,000 euros for three pickups. We need this much money for uh, some specialized supplies or for a better prosthetic for someone who's been wounded rather than the kind of basic model that is provided by the government. So that is very much kind of part of everyone's life here. Finally, Nick, I mean, it's a, it's a week of anniversaries because there's the anniversary, obviously, of the February uh, 24th full-scale invasion launch uh, in 2022. But there's also the anniversary of the Euromaidan revolution in 2014. Is that something that is part of um, the atmosphere at the moment in Ukraine? Is that being marked? Is that being talked about? It is being talked about. It's not as prominent as it obviously would have been without this war. But I think for many people, it's part of the same thing, right? These, these protests were about getting out of that Russian sphere of influence, getting away from a leadership that was totally doing Moscow's beck and call. So you know, part of the reason that Russia annexed Crimea was because of these protests in the streets of Kiev that were demanding a different kind of leadership and a different kind of perspective for Ukraine. And for most people, you know, the conflict in Donbass after 24 and now the full-scale invasion after February 22, it's all part of the same bigger picture of Vladimir Putin trying to stop Ukraine heading to Europe. I was talking to DW's Kiev correspondent, Nick Connolly. Finally, this half hour. Ukraine marked another anniversary this week, that of the popular uprising which deposed former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych in February 2014. What we want to know is, what was the name of that uprising? Was it the Euromaidan? Was it Euro Spring? Or was it Orange Revolution? Last week, our question had a Cold War theme. We wanted to know about the origins of the phrase Iron Curtain as a metaphor for political partition. Were those origins in the 17th century with the British Civil War, in the 18th century with the French guillotine, or in the 19th century with a fire safety curtain? And the answer was fire safety curtain. If you want to take part in this week's quiz, then just head over to Spotify and click on this week's edition of the show. 
Inside Europe is, of course, also available on all the other usual platforms, including YouTube via the DW Podcasts channel. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. In the next half hour, we'll be mainly focusing on Russia as we trace out the shape of the space left by the death of Alexei Navalny. Still, it was a great shock because Navalny was not just a political figure. He was also a very symbolic moral figure. Look at the delicate issue of Norway's changing relationship with Russia and find out how Russia is using cryptocurrency to bypass international sanctions. If it's this easy to move ruble to cryptocurrency and then move that cryptocurrency globally in an instant, what does that do to the entire sanctions regime? Then, finally, we'll be circling back to Ukraine in the company of Mstislav Chernov, director of the BAFTA award-winning documentary 20 Days in Mariupol. Stay tuned. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. News of the death of Alexei Navalny, the outspoken and charismatic anti-corruption campaigner who became the de facto leader of Russia's opposition, has sent shockwaves around the world. Navalny's loss is perhaps felt most keenly by the disparate and scattered members of the Russian opposition movement, to whom he had become both a figurehead and a locus of hope. To get a sense of the shape of his loss and its implications, I spoke to Ilya Matveyev, a political scientist formerly based in St. Petersburg, Russia, who is currently a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley in the USA. Did he remember where he was when he got the news, I asked. I was at home and uh, due to the time difference, I woke up to the news in the morning. So it's been several hours already in Europe and in Russia when people knew and I just woke up and obviously it was pretty horrible. It was comparable to 24th February. So it was similar in the sense that I woke up to all this news of Russia launching this invasion against Ukraine. And again, I woke up to this terrible news and all of my friends, uh, some of them saying, uh, because they know that I live in uh, California now, so they say, like, I know you're going to wake up soon, so just don't open your telegram, don't open your social networks, because this is going to be awful. And so, and yeah, it was. And you can say that this was something that uh, you could expect, 
But at the same time, even though you could expect this, still it was uh, a great shock because uh, Navalny was uh, not just a political figure. At this point, he was also a very symbolic uh, moral figure. And we all have a kind of a relationship with Navalny in a sense that uh, we all felt that he was uh, this powerful leader of the opposition movement and also a person we invested so many hopes in him. So he was a person representing hope and people invested their hope in uh, Navalny. And this is why it felt as basically a personal loss. Right. So you're describing a sort of gut punch, end of the world kind of feeling. And I mean, it's extraordinary to hear you talk about it in those terms. And it's probably a testament as well to the political evolution of Alexei Navalny, who earlier in his political career was not someone that a left-wing thinker like yourself might necessarily have been expected to identify with. Right. And uh, in this question, you see this gigantic gap between the Russian opposition and the rest of the world. So for the world, it's still uh, Navalny is a kind of uh, somewhat dark figure, uh, a nationalist, maybe not uh, a radical nationalist, but still a nationalist. And so it's a kind of a contradictory, controversial person. And it's absolutely true that he made some uh, disgusting videos uh, back in 2006, 2007. But several things need to be recognized here. First is that Russian society is unfortunately nationalist and xenophobic in general. And Navalny was the product of this society. But he quite consciously evolved and he rejected those statements and he apologized for them. He rejected ethnic nationalism politically and uh, never looked back. And furthermore, he became much more attuned to the oppression of minorities in Russia. And one of the examples is uh, just... A couple of months before his murder, he defended the rights of Muslims in Russian prisons and he filed a lawsuit with uh, the Russian Ministry of Justice while he was in prison. He emphasized uh, extremely harsh treatment of Muslim prisoners in Russian uh, prisons and penal colonies and he tried to advocate for the rights of Muslims. So he tried to develop a kind of a patriotism that was free from hate and uh, focused on uh, rights, on democracy, and on struggle against uh, dictatorship. You spoke earlier, Ilya, about your visceral reaction to the news of Navalny's death. Do you think that that sense of shock and loss was felt in the same way by people in Russia? Uh, There are reports of a person arrested for uh, laying uh, the flowers at uh, some monuments uh, paying respect to Navalny, and this person was uh, threatened uh, with a gun pointed him uh, like point blank at uh, the police uh, station. This is what happened to people who felt this about Navalny, who wanted to pay their respects and... uh, Some 400 people were arrested across the country and uh, uh, essentially, and and now there are these uh, reports that uh, they will try to identify everyone who came to all these, you know, different places across Russia with candles, with flowers and to identify these people and somehow harass them. So a lot of people felt this terrible loss and a lot of people 
you know, wanted somehow to express it, but the Russian state is just uh, targeting them. And uh, for the Kremlin, it's a scorched earth tactic when it comes to Navalny. So his organization needs to be, and his supporters needs to be completely scattered. That is their objective. They just want to completely destroy this movement and any, any remnant of this movement, they want to completely crush. And it now, of course, falls to Yulia Navalnaya, Alexei's widow, to try to hold the disparate and scattered parts of the Russian opposition together. What are your thoughts on her decision to continue her husband's work? I have kind of conflicted feelings about this because I recognize the enormous burden that uh, she takes on herself this enormous uh, responsibility and it's extremely difficult to be a public figure of this caliber and to be a leader of the movement right and she just lost uh, her husband and frankly this feels a bit kind of inhumane that she has now to to have this enormous responsibility right after losing her husband you see so this this feels uh, kind of wretched on some level but at the same time i recognize that this was her own decision and uh, she has the right you know to make this decision and to do this and uh, frankly i think that uh, yulia navalna will surprise us as a politician because now her intention is to become a politician herself and she will surprise us because from what we saw before she has uh, a lot of personal willpower, and uh, she is a very special person herself. Because at every point, when you know Navalny was harassed, when his family was harassed, when there were uh, searches in his apartments, when uh, he was poisoned, when all of these things happened, she never allowed herself to break down. She always presented a very brave kind of face, and. Uh, she was always very calm and very focused on Navalny's political objectives. She always made it clear that she recognized the purpose of this sacrifice. And uh, she is just a very strong person. And I think that uh, she might become a very strong political leader. I was talking to Ilya Matveyev. Ilya is a political scientist formerly based in St. Petersburg, Russia, who is currently a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley in the USA. In Norway, too, the news of Alexei Navalny's death in a Russian penal colony was greeted with shock and concern. The Russian government bears a heavy responsibility, the Norwegian foreign minister wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, adding that he was deeply saddened by the news. On Monday, the foreign ministry in Oslo summoned the Russian ambassador to Norway over the death of Russia's most prominent political prisoner. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Norway's relations with its powerful neighbour had been close, but all that came to a screeching halt on the 24th of February 2022. Now people on both sides of the border are counting the cost, as Lars Bavanga reports from Norway's Arctic North. 
Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov addressing people in the Norwegian town of Kirkenes in October 2014. He was marking 70 years since this part of Norway was liberated from Nazi occupation by Soviet forces. That event, and the fact that Norway shares a nearly 200 kilometers long border with Russia, led to close relations between the two peoples. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, seeing any kind of Russian political presence here has been unthinkable. But the total breakdown of relations between NATO founding member Norway and Russia goes far beyond political contact. My name is Kari Agamiklebost and I'm a professor of Russian history with, with the Arctic University of Norway in Tromsø. My department's cooperation with Russian institutions actually go back to before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, so the late 1980s. And the sad situation is that we have no longer any institutional cooperation. Kari Aga Miklobost's university used to have more than 50 different research programs with Russian institutions before Putin invaded Ukraine. None remain. And it's very frustrating to be cut off from former Russian students uh, and know that they are now uh, being subject to this very harsh state propaganda teaching them to become soldiers. Can you still talk to colleagues across the border who have become friends? Well, I mostly choose not to discuss the current political developments with, with uh, friends and colleagues in Russia, because if they don't bring up the topic themselves, I assume that they prefer not to talk about it. Here in Tromsø Harbour, you still get the occasional Russian fishing boat. A fisheries agreement with Norway still allows them limited access to offload their cargo for the European market here but it's a far cry from what it used to be like. A relatively large city like Tromsø can absorb this loss, but for the border town of Kirkenes, with just 3,500 people, the breakdown in relations is felt more keenly. Norway has stopped issuing uh, tourist visas uh, to Russian citizens. Uh, there are no payment system that works on credit cards and so on across the border. Mobile phones are more trouble to use. Thomas Nilsson is the editor of the Barents Observer, a Kirkenes-based newspaper reporting in both English and Russian. For Kirkenes, uh, that means that uh, a lot of the shops that were uh, established for cross-border trade and shopping uh, is today closing down. Russian cars are no longer in the streets because uh, Norway, as the rest of Europe, has put a ban on private Russian cars entering. I tried to write about war, about consequences of war, but I was not ready to be a hero and I didn't want that one day at uh, 5 or 6 a.m. the FSB come to my flat uh, and uh, broke the door and so on. Georgi Shentemirov is a journalist from the Russian city of Petrozavodsk, now working alongside Thomas Nilsson at the Barents Observer in Chirkines. But as you can imagine, this is no cultural exchange. 
Georgi fled with his family in 2022, fearing both arrest and mobilisation. Last year, Russian authorities branded him a foreign agent, putting him on their expanding list of some 500 individuals and organisations deemed to be working against Putin's state apparatus. And working at the Barnes Observer, you now have still the chance to write about Russia for people in Russia. Yes, internet gives us a lot of quite big access to information inside Russia. Of course, we can use messengers and uh, we can contact with uh, activists, journalists, we can contact with people who suffer from war or who are faced with consequences of war and so on. While independent Russian voices like Georgi's and independent academic research is being silenced by the Kremlin, the Norwegian government has asked for all cooperation with Russia to cease. Some people in this part of Norway say it feels like a return to the Cold War, maybe even worse. Yet at the University of Tromsø, Kari Aga Muklebost chooses to hope for better times. Well, I haven't lost hope. We have to just follow the situation very closely. It's very unpredictable. We have seen signs that protest against the war is coming up, that Russian society in certain sectors is mobilizing. Lars Bevanger, DW, Tromsø. Meanwhile, the EU is hoping that the new round of sanctions announced this week will help ramp up pressure on Putin. This is the 13th round of sanctions since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The sanctions have targeted traditional financial institutions inside Russia, like banks, as well as new digital currencies, such as Bitcoin. The European Union even launched sanctions designed to prevent many Russians in Europe from using crypto altogether. But, as Levi Bridges reports, it's not quite as simple as that. In the first year of the war, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a mass mobilization to send men to fight in Ukraine. Thousands fled the country. News footage captured in the days after the announcement shows thousands of Russians waiting to cross the border into nearby countries like Kazakhstan and Georgia. Some traveled by foot, carrying their belongings. One pushed a baby in a stroller. Some of those Russians eventually made it into the European Union, where they couldn't access their bank accounts back home because of sanctions. Cryptocurrencies, which are decentralized and not connected to banks, provided an economic lifeline for Russians who fled. They could send money as crypto to family and friends and convert it to paper money, like euros, on what are called crypto exchanges. I talked to a Russian activist in Armenia named Daniil Chabikin. He runs a human rights organization that has helped people who have been jailed in Russia for holding anti-war rallies. He says Russians like donating with crypto to support this work because you can send it anonymously, which is key in a country where people are jailed just for disagreeing with the war. But when Europe banned Russians from using major crypto exchanges, anti-war organizations like Chabikins lost one of their main funding sources. 
We started getting messages from crypto exchanges that our accounts would soon be frozen and that we should take all of our money out because we're from Russia. So these restrictions added another difficulty to our work against the war. The sanctions greatly affected Russians organizing to stop the war. I talked to one Russian woman named Olga Shkolina who received asylum in Poland because of her anti-government activism. She arrived in the EU with her daughter. Shkolina received financial support from family in Russia through crypto, but that became more difficult because of the sanctions. I received a message that the last payment was blocked as a suspicious operation. This was the only way I could receive support. I filed a complaint to receive it and was denied. As a refugee, the sanctions cut off an important income source for Shkolina. But for people involved in the cryptosphere, banning Russians from crypto exchanges made perfect sense. Shemislav Kral is the CEO of Zona, one of Europe's largest crypto exchanges. From the moral perspective, from this point of view, we had to do it. Because, for example, what our employees who are Ukrainians would say if the CEO of the, and the management board still cooperates with Russians? It's like, uh, you know, cooperating with devil. Individuals like Kral enacted these bans right after the war started. The EU's crypto sanctions then took things much further. The restrictions were supposed to stop people from inside Russia, especially oligarchs who are already under sanctions, from moving money out of Russia. But loopholes remain. What we continue to see are normal, everyday Russians moving rubles to crypto to move value globally. Adam Zarazinski is the CEO of the cryptocurrency analytics company Inca Digital. He says people inside Russia can still convert rubles into crypto through exchanges that are registered outside the U.S. and Europe. Zarazinski's company has even discovered two instances of crypto exchanges working with sanctioned Russian banks. This does impact the effectiveness of sanctions. If it's this easy to move ruble to cryptocurrency and then move that cryptocurrency globally uh, in an instant, right, what does that do to the entire sanctions regime? On the Ukrainian side of the battlefront, crypto flows much more freely. Ukrainians have raised millions of dollars in crypto donations to fight the war. Mark Latouk fled the fighting in eastern Ukraine himself after Russia invaded. He now lives in Kiev and works with the Ukrainian cybersecurity company Happy. The group researches how crypto is used in criminal activity. And Latouk says Russians also use crypto to fund their war. We found groups on Facebook, Twitter and Telegram that were fundraising with crypto for weaponry like drones. This money was going to both the Russian army and private military companies like the Wagner Group. Latouk says law enforcement is taking action to prevent this. But, he says, even when these cases are detected, crypto exchanges often react too slowly to stop Russian military groups from receiving the money. The problem is that the exchanges always require more evidence before blocking the account. And when they do finally block it, the dirty money has already been exchanged to dollars or euros and left the exchange's hands. Ukraine has received millions more crypto donations than Russia to fund their military. Still, Russia's position in the war has strengthened recently, and the current crypto regulations are still complicating the work of Russian activists, like Daniil Chabikin. 
Ну, то есть я понимаю, что санкции, по идее, должны были остановить войну. I think that sanctions should stop the war. And I don't understand how blocking the crypto accounts of Russians, including initiatives against the conflict, will help stop it. I think it actually hurts the anti-war effort a little. But crypto is still funding both sides of this war, an example of how this nearly two-year-old conflict is playing out in the modern financial system. Levi Bridges, DW. If you'd like to comment on that or any of the pieces in the show, then our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. Podcast listeners can, of course, also use the comment function on whatever platform you're using to listen to us. Ratings and reviews are also, of course, always appreciated since they help other people to find us. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. One of the most powerful moments at last Sunday's British Academy Film Awards, or BAFTA's ceremony in London, came when the winner of Best Documentary was announced and its director stepped forward to give his acceptance speech. Yesterday, another day before yesterday, another Ukrainian city has fallen. Russia has occupied Avdiivka and many cities before that. So the story of Mariupol is a symbol of everything that happened and a symbol of struggle, symbol of, symbol of faith. And thank you for empowering our voice. And let's just uh, keep fighting. Thank you. 20 Days in Mariupol is Mr. Slav Chernov's first feature film and tells the story of the 20 days he spent trapped in the eponymous city as part of a small team of AP journalists who became the only international reporters to remain in Mariupol during Russia's siege, capturing what later became defining images of the war in Ukraine. Dying children, mass graves, the bombing of a maternity hospital and so much more. In June 2022, just weeks after escaping the city, Mr. Slav Chernov spoke at Deutsche Welle's Global Media Forum, where he and his AP colleague Evgeny Maloletka accepted DW's Freedom of Speech Award. On the 4th of March, uh, we have left another day in Mariupol. We have left the basement of our hotel where we spend night. And we went out to report from what's going on in the city. We didn't know. And we saw that city has changed dramatically. There was chaos. Uh, people were looting shops. People were desperate. Um, they were taking food, medicine. Sometimes they were fighting. Some, you know, the, you know, they, were, they would even attack journalists. We just couldn't recognize the city. We couldn't understand what happened and why it happened so quickly. Uh, there was an intense shelling on the outskirts, and day by day later, more people were dying from the shelling. People were just lying on the ground. Nobody would pick them up, or they would be just buried in their gardens, or they would be just picked up 
by a community service and brought to mass graves. Later on, the building of this uh, community service was bombed, so that stopped too. So I couldn't understand why this happened. Why did this change happen so quickly? And then afterwards, we did realize that the reason for this was that there was no information whatsoever. People didn't know what was going on in the neighborhood just nearby, in the village outside of a outside of a city. Uh, people would come to us because they would see the press sign on the helmet and they would say, is Kiev still standing? Is Odessa is already taken or not? Is, how is the Kharkiv? I have a family there and so on and so on. And they expected us to have answers. And we tried our best to give those answers. But at that point I realized that Sometimes news, sometimes information is more important for human survival than even food. And that thought allowed us to keep working, even though every day was harder and harder, just to make yourself to go out from the basement, because it was constant shelling. Uh, so, until we left Mariupol, we didn't know what kind of effect our work have uh, caused. And probably until now, I'm still wondering, did it change anything? I hope it did. But I just want everyone to understand that what we did is nothing extraordinary. So, what we did is that every single journalist in Ukraine, Ukrainian or international, is doing right now. So the, the suffering, the stress, the trauma, the, the danger is what people experience every day, civilians and journalists. And they do that to, you know, to tell the stories of Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Bakhmut, Slovyansk, Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, other cities, Bucha. And they keep doing this. So I just want you to remember, please, there is nothing we did more than all these people are doing right now. Uh, so let this price, let this price be to all of them, to all people who work right now in Ukraine, who will continue to work. Because if they don't, this war will go on and on and on and on. Thank you. Mr. Slav Chernov speaking to DW's Global Media Forum in 2022, the year that Russia's war with Ukraine began. That brings us to the end of this show. We'll be back with normal programming next week. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineer Jan Winkelmann, assisted by Laura Hummelsheim. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn. <laughs>